0: Some of it is real legislation. Some of it is, I would describe as kind of. Fake legislation—it's it, the kind of bill you pass when you want to say I was the first to pass a bill on that, but you can't get anybody to agree to do anything serious.
1: Having worked on the Hill, one of the one of the go-to things you do when you want to appear to be doing something but don't have any real ideas for how to accomplish your goals, you require reporting on something.
0: I, and I, I should say, fake legislation has the value that it shows that a lot of people in Congress are worried about something. They don't know what to do about it. If you fall within the ambit of that worry, then you need to start hiring people to, to, to lobby. Welcome to episode two ninety five of the Cyber Law Podcast. Back from our lengthy uh, uh, winter break, uh, uh, and brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, and uh, we're back with new energy and new enthusiasm. Uh, uh, but the views we express here still do not represent the opinions of the firm, our clients, our institutions, uh, our families. Uh, um, spouses or pets. Uh, uh, joining me today are Maury Schenk, advisor to Steptoe on uh, European technology and cybersecurity issues, uh, ca- calling from our London office. Uh, Nate Jones, the co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the National Security Council and DOJ. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. And then I've saved David Christ to introduce uh, last. He is the co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly an assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security. Division at the Justice Department and just appointed uh, by the uh, FISA court to examine the changes that the FBI and the Justice Department are making in their procedures in the wake of what I think is fairly characterized as a disastrous uh, inspector general report about the uh, Carter Page FISA. That's the good news. Uh, uh, the bad news is that uh, he's now been criticized in public uh, by everybody on the right up to and including uh, Donald J. Trump uh, as to establishment. Uh, um, Somebody even called him uh, a leftist lawyer. Uh, All kind of uh, crazy uh, for those of you who've listened to him. Uh, um, uh, uh, David, uh, uh, I I have to apologize for the people, many of whom I agree with on uh, some of these topics uh, and the vituperation you've been uh, subjected to. Uh, 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 How are you holding up?
2: Uh, hanging in there, Stewart, and just trying to focus on chopping the wood that's been put in front of me.
0: I exactly right. Uh, uh, you know, there was a, a, a deputy attorney general I uh, spent time with who said, "Yeah, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm I'm just doing policy piecework. I go to the, I show up in the office at whatever time I show up, and I just chip away at the rock face uh, until it's time to go home. Uh, uh, and that's kind of uh, uh, what what you do when you have those jobs. So uh, I I do appreciate you taking the responsibility. Uh, uh, I'm sure it's unpaid. I – and it's clearly uh, unremunerated in any other uh, uh, currency. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, as I said, I, I apologize for all the people who, like me, probably agree with uh, uh, Representative Nunes more than you do. But uh, uh, disagreeing about it and being a jerk are the two different things uh, and I wish there were fewer jerks on my side of the, uh, the discussion. Uh, uh, let's let's put that aside and uh, and start talking. Ask I'll ask you, David, to talk about this. There's two end-to-end crypto issues that have popped up. One in India, one uh, uh, here in the U.S. Uh, uh, let's start with India. India's got a, a proposal for. Uh, creating a kind of exception to the uh, liability immunities that uh, uh, things like CDA, the Communications Decency Act, Section 230 have been providing, saying, you know, you you only get those immunities uh, if you're in a position to filter and inspect the traffic. And if you have end-to-end encryption, well, you can't, and therefore, you're going to be uh, subject to liability for what people say. Is that more or less what uh, India is saying and uh, what uh, 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 two dozen uh, crypto experts have criticized?
2: Yeah, that does seem to be an accurate description of it. Uh, And, you know, with the uh, usual grain of salt about Culper's uh, clients having interest in this space, it does seem to be one more aspect of what is shaping up to be a a worldwide press on end-to-end encryption uh, for 2020. It's most prominently articulated and practiced, I think, around here at least by Attorney General Barr uh, and Home Secretary Patel in the United Kingdom uh, and related Five Eyes statements that they have made, summit meetings uh, that they have convened. Uh, but others are pressing as well. India here and, uh, of course, the EU, as you have written about, Stuart, on lawfare, um, you know, will be instantiating in domestic law the uh, European Electronic Communications Code in calendar year 2020. So there's going to be pressure on a bunch of fronts, and it looks like it'll take at least a couple of different forms. One is just a direct frontal assault in which communications providers may be uh, ordered to uh, provide access to plain text and to undo encryption and the other is this sort of more indirect way in which uh, liability protection is conditioned on providing plain text uh, which will incentivize that so it, it, I think this is you know gearing up to be a, a running uh, battle across the next uh, foreseeable future
0: well and and the um, the FBI is uh, in a much more Uh, staged and careful way, apparently returning to the fight with Apple. Uh, They've got the Pensacola case, which uh, uh, if you remember, was a uh, a terrorist attack by a Saudi trainee uh, in uh, uh, in the U.S. for military training, who uh, killed several people uh, at a a military base in the U.S. Uh, And there was a lot of speculation early on that other members of his training uh, mission or other uh, Saudis might be involved. So there's a real reason to believe that uh, his phones might have uh, information on them about uh, uh, the extent of any conspiracy. And uh, the government has asked Apple for help and Apple has more or less said, oh yeah, we'll give you whatever help we can, but we can't give you much because we've you know, more or less cut ourselves off from access to the data. And everyone is speculating that the U.S. government is going to say, yeah, about that. You know, we had an idea uh, in the San Bernardino shootings that we uh, wanted you to write a new update and send it to these phones. uh, And uh, um, after all, the person who uh, owned the phone is dead. Um, one of the bullets actually went through one of the phones, as far as I can tell. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, uh, the last time, Apple kind of embarrassed the FBI by saying, well, you sure you can't get at it some other way? And they said no. And then they said, oh, actually, yeah. Uh, and they bought a tool that got them in. Uh, this time, it looks as though they may be pursuing this with more top cover from Justice and uh, more patience and maybe a better case.
2: That that could be right. It does look a lot like a replay of San Bernardino in the sense that they're trying to get access to a device and unlock the device. So this doesn't seem to be sort of end-to-end encryption of the sort associated with services, but just opening it up uh, to get access to whatever is displayed on the phone, uh, as you say, San Bernardino, in a way, just was fought to a draw, and eventually they hacked it on their own. Although they did, the bureau did come out of it looking pretty bad, uh, with an inspector general report accusing them of sort of really not connecting the dots about what their actual capabilities were. Here, I think you are right that you would hope and presume that uh, they're a little more organized um, and probably have a little bit more focused support from justice given where Bill Barr has been in his public statements on this. Uh, so again, you know, one more aspect of what it looks to be a, an ongoing campaign on this issue.
0: So let me ask you one quick question. I I, I find the idea that the Indians are pursuing of saying, yeah, sure, you can have end-to-end encrypted as long as you're willing to accept the liability for the bad stuff that happens as a result. Uh, uh, Kind of compelling. I mean, if uh, Apple said, yeah, we make this stuff um, and it's true, we release all kinds of uh, um, uh, carbon into the atmosphere, uh, but our phones are really cool and uh, we think it would produce a less good phone if we didn't release all this carbon into the atmosphere. So we're just going to keep doing it. It's your problem to solve. Uh, We'd all consider that a joke. Um, And yet that's a very much what, their argument here amounts to end-to-end encryption is good it's it's good on on average for everybody and therefore you should just suck it up and and take the consequences uh, in other uh, circumstances we'd say yeah um it's good for you especially so why don't you pay the consequences
2: well i mean as as reflected by your uh, support for radical market intervention by the government i would say that um you know the politics of this are very unpredictable right now and there are people on both the left and the right who are you know concerned about and pressing for re-examination of section 230 uh, and the political coalitions I think are a little bit hard to predict it's an extremely dynamic time uh, worldwide and particularly in US politics uh, so Stuart I think you are right to sort of advance that theory there have been calls for regulating these tech companies as public utilities uh, you know uh, And the pollution theory or pollution analogy has been pursued there. So it's anybody's guess, I think, how this is really going to roll out over time, both here and abroad.
0: Yep. So we had lots and lots of legislation and new developments uh, uh, here. This is our first uh, time back since uh, 2020 rolled in and the 20s arrived. uh, And there's legislation. Some of it is real legislation. Some of it is, I would describe as kind of Fake legislation. It it says it's it's the kind of bill you pass when you want to say I was the first to pass a bill on that, but you can't get anybody to agree to do anything serious about a problem. Uh, um, uh, Nate, I, to my mind, this legislation on deep fakes, the federal legislation on deep fakes, feels like that somebody counting coup to say they they were the first to uh, pass federal legislation,
1: but this this bill doesn't really
0: do much, does it?
1: Not too much. And, you know, as have, having worked on the Hill, one of the one of the go-to things you do when you want to appear to be doing something, but don't have any real ideas for how to accomplish your goals, you require reporting on something. And that's largely what this does here. It requires the government to provide Congress with a comprehensive report on foreign weapon, weaponization of so-called deep fakes, including um, an assessment of The uh, capabilities of certain nation states to weaponize deepfakes, and then requires the government to notify Congress if foreign governments are deploying those capabilities in uh, U.S. elections. Uh, Those are things that I would expect and and, uh, anticipate that the U.S. government is doing already. Uh, And so this just involves. Um, telling Congress really what they know and and what they're doing about it. The area where um, th- this may do a little bit of good is in establishing uh, this so-called deepfake prize competition. Um, they're trying to encourage research and innovation around deepfake detection technologies. Uh, and we'll see how, how well-funded that ultimately is. But um, these are the kinds of things that have... Have um, you know created incentives for for technical experts to dive into this problem and help uh, contribute to solving it? The lingering question here around deepfakes is even once you identify it, what do you do about it, um, and how do you counter these things? Uh, and then um, you know perhaps more to the point, not just in foreign uh, manipulation efforts but also domestic, uh, and that is. The million-dollar question that is is left completely unaddressed by this legislation.
0: Yeah, and I worry that the 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 deepfake prize will simply um, give money to the person who becomes the target for the generative uh, uh, adversarial uh, deepfake AI technology. Uh, basically, uh, okay, this is the best they could do. Can you beat that with your deep fake? And so uh, yes. we're we're funding uh, at least half the the arms race there. Uh, I, am, I should say, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. I was way ahead of this issue when I was in government uh, uh, when I – in 2008, I wanted to issue a prize for uh, fake uh, – a fake Osama bin Laden video uh, uh, in which – Uh, You could prove it was fake by having him say the word kumquat at some point in it as a way of taking away the (laughs) – the dread that was associated with those messages back—if you remember that—sure, that's course.
2: the Turing yeah. test for deep fakes now. It, is that exactly <laughs> exactly
0: the Kumquat test? Uh, and and maybe we should we should uh, encourage the prize to uh, to use that as the, uh, uh, the 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 clear signal that it's a deep fake. Uh, speaking of fake legislation, uh, I think this—and uh, I, I should say—fake legislation is has the value that it shows that a lot of people in Congress are worried about something. They don't know what to do about it, but if you're if you fall within the ambit of that worry, then you need to start hiring people to, to, to lobby Congress because you're likely to find that next time the bill is a little more demanding. And yeah. I, I, it seems to me that this, this second piece of fake legislation uh, says much the same thing. I, uh, this is the, the uh, instructions to the State Department to report on what they're doing about uh, cyber attack uh, licensing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This relates back to a story we discussed uh, before the holidays about the involvement of an American consulting firm and the development of surveillance capabilities for the Emirati government. Uh, a lot of those surveillance capabilities were ultimately rooted in cyber attack tools that uh, this firm ultimately uh, assisted the Emirati government in developing. As you said, you know, your tell for the the deepfakes call you wanted to, to put out uh, back in the early 2000s was the word kumquat. Uh, here it is congressional reporting. Um, that's how we know this is, quote unquote, <laughs> fake legislation, I guess. Um, yes. But, you know, it, again, having worked on the Hill, I, I think – you know, this is really ultimately an, an exercise through legislation of Congress's oversight powers, right? They're telling the State Department, tell us how you do this and what your mechanisms are for overseeing, enforcing these types of licenses. Uh, and, and you know
0: and, that, it, that, that and, and the answer cannot be, oh, we're not really doing it.
1: Right. Um, And, and so, you know, this is how Congress gets informed on an issue that they're concerned about. And as you said, the next step may be real legislation with real teeth, Um, you know, based on the story that we saw about Good uh, Harbor Consulting, um, you know, the underlying facts uh, suggest that among other things, the the work for the Emirati government evolved quite a bit after the license was granted. And so one of the key things that I think Congress should be looking at here is, is not just how these licenses are granted, but also what terms and conditions are imposed on, on, uh, individuals or entities who obtain these licenses and then ultimately how how the state department is continuing to monitor these things on an ongoing basis and and enforcing compliance with those terms that is is something that i think just given the the level of resources that the directorate of defense trade control has is a pretty difficult task for them to do right now, I suspect.
0: And and they're walking a tightrope here. It's not like you can't go to the Chinese and get these capabilities. Uh, uh, And so uh, when a U.S. company says we'd like to sell this to somebody in the Persian Gulf, uh, it's uh, uh, implicit that if they don't do it, somebody else will. And that might be somebody who has not the slightest uh, uh, constraint in terms of turning that capability against the US government. So, um, a, and, and this is not a technology that is easily controlled, to, uh, tools right. that are in use um, by very sophisticated users today are going to be in use by uh, cyber criminals five years from now. So uh, the idea that we really have a serious uh, export control handle on these capabilities is risible, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Okay, Uh, One more uh, uh, set of rules. So this is not – this was actually adopted in the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, uh, but it's only coming into effect now. There have been rules on when defense contractors can sell and use Chinese technology uh, and the – the rule that took effect in August said, "Don't sell us any of that Chinese technology," and it had a list of, of, tech, uh, uh, of firms that it didn't want. That was pretty easy, although it's not as easy as you think to know what's in your uh, some of the products that you're uh, you're selling. But if uh, the this is the second shoe is about to drop, uh, and it's a it, it's not a baby shoe this time. It's it's a it's a, a horseshoe for uh, Clydesdale.
1: Yeah. it's uh, The second prong of the ban from the 2019 NDAA is, as you said, much broader. It, it precludes the government from contracting with any entity that uses any equipment system or service um, that utilizes covered telecommunications equipment as a su- substantial or essential component of that system themselves. And so if they're using this potentially even in in aspects of their business completely unrelated to the federal contract, they would be barred from doing business with the government and and as you 're suggesting, Stuart, this requires a, a level of knowledge and due diligence about their supply chain and all of the individual or at least the important individual components of of the the hardware and software that they're using, um, that is is really going to be difficult for some of these companies to dig into and stay on top of over time. Um, because that's what they're going to need to do ultimately to make the kinds of certifications that they'll need to continue to do business with federal government agencies after this.
0: To go back to export controls, uh, uh, there's been an enthusiasm for two or three years, uh, starting in the Obama administration, for a real revamping and a tightening of export controls on commercial technologies that have major military applications. Uh, And uh, one of the technologies that was clearly on the block for more aggressive regulation was artificial intelligence. And there's been lots of concern about what exactly that would mean and whether the rules would take account of the fact that uh, the U.S. doesn't really control this technology uh, in any significant sense. We've seen the first fruits of that effort. Uh, Maury, looks as though it was really carefully tailored
3: i mean more than carefully i would say it's got there are four characteristics that any software it's geospatial imagery software that's now restricted as of the 6th of january and it has to meet four characteristics all of them which are incredibly specific one is that it uses deep convolutional neural networks which is most deep learning does that, but there are other AI techniques. It has to use specific reduction of pixel variation. It has to use rotational pattern matching. It it almost seems to me like somebody got this rule written to restrict particular competitors from exporting to the global market because there's-
0: Or, or maybe contractors.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, because I don't know, the, the only other theory is this particular technique is of great Intelligence or military value, but then they wouldn't put it into a public rule. So uh, it, it's strangely narrow. It, it's not anything like broad uses of AI for uh, for military or intelligence
0: purposes. So here's my my speculation, and it is just speculation that um, there has there was a long Cold War between business represented by the Commerce Department and the military over uh, changing the standards for what would be uh, exportable, um, which was um, broken. Uh, uh, There was a big breakthrough in the trench lines by uh, the adoption of FIRMA, the legislation that came along, I guess, last year uh, on uh, uh, CFIUS and which also mandated a change in export control law. Um, And my guess is that the the, the trench breakthrough has been contained and there's a new trench warfare over uh, exactly what's going to be controlled. And uh, the only thing they could agree on controlling uh, uh, was this very narrow category and that there'll be a long, bitter fight uh, over whether to allow uh, uh, export controls on other forms of artificial intelligence.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're right, and that's a credible theory, industry does well in this battle because you could control 50 items that are this broad and it wouldn't be that broad, that bad for the USAI industry.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Uh, Christmas, we, uh, you know, it, it's been a while. We haven't had a chance to report since Christmas, but, uh, uh, the justice department got a Christmas present that, uh, uh, I certainly appreciate Nate. <laughs> uh, uh, what happened uh, uh, to them just before Christmas?
1: Yeah. So um, we actually talked about this uh, back in the fall when, when DOJ first filed the case. And um, I'm happy to report this is one of the few instances in which you and I were right, Stuart. Um, <laughs> DOJ sued, sued Edward Snowden um, claiming breach of contract and fiduciary duties. Uh, in the publication of his book without first seeking publication review, which he had committed to do as a government employee with a security clearance. The judge in this case, uh, not surprisingly, ruled in favor of the government's motion for summary judgment. Uh, and and denied Snowden uh, uh, discovery in the first instance and said, basically, there are no real facts that you can uncover that will help you prove your case here because we know what all the relevant facts are and Based on those facts, it's pretty clear that DOJ uh, is, is in a position legally to prevail. And so it, it ruled in favor of the government's motion uh, and uh, said that Edward Snowden shall not uh, receive any of the proceeds from his book sales. So the question for you, Stuart, is if you'd like me to wait until the appellate process plays out or if you want me to just go ahead and send you a copy of this right now.
0: Let's make sure we get uh, that, that there is absolutely no possibility that uh, uh, Snowden will get a nickel of this. Uh, uh, and my, my, my second um, assignment for the Justice Department is now they should go ask all of the campuses that. Gave Snowden a speaking fee so he could, you know, put his head on a stock and uh, uh, talk through a screen. Uh, uh, All the people who paid him to uh, to give those speeches, uh, how many of them actually uh, uh, notified the IRS and did he pay taxes on it? I'm betting not. Uh, And so uh, uh, we could add tax evasion to all the other uh, charges that he's going to face. That would that would be you know that would be a second Christmas uh, present, if we can get that. Great idea. <laughs> this is uh, this is the opposite of a Christmas present. Uh, the uh, advocate general, who's kind of, I don't know, uh, hard to say what uh, role he plays in European uh, jurisprudence, sort of a super amicus to, their, uh, to the European Court of Justice. He sends them opinions that uh, are drafts, meant to be drafts of what they should say. And they can, they can take it or leave it, uh, but they take it more often than they leave it. Uh, uh, and the uh, uh, Advocate General has issued an opinion in the second Schrems case. Uh, uh, Maury, can you give us the background and tell us what this is likely to mean?
3: Yeah, well, the first Schrems case was where the European Court of Justice invalidated uh, the U.S.E.U. Safe Harbor. Um, Shrems had protested that his data on Facebook, on Facebook wasn't validly transferred to the U.S. under the safe harbor. That led to the privacy shield needing to be negotiated. Facebook, after the safe harbor was invalidated, started using EU standard contractual clauses to send data to the U.S., and he's challenged that. Uh, so this case is about whether that is valid. Um, the Advocate General uh, said to uphold the safe harbor, so and the court didn't follow him there. Here he has said to uphold the standard contractual clauses, but not exactly with a ringing endorsement. Is he said U.S. national security access to Shrem's data may be valid. National security is a is a is a valid interest, but it may not be sufficiently narrowly tailored. Uh, and he sees some problems with it. He was persuaded that the ombudsman person mechanism under the privacy shield provided a remedy that wasn't present in the safe harbor, so could help, um, but encouraged EU uh, data protection authorities to take a close look at anybody who challenges transfers under the standard contractual clauses. So he's recommended to the court, which they may or may not agree with, upholding the standard contractual clauses, but he's He's cast a lot of ongoing uncertainty in uh, on EU, US, and EU to other countries, as you pointed out, Stuart. China is a lot worse about data than the US, so a lot more uncertainty about validity of data transfers.
0: Yeah, this is this is really going to be a mess. And if there's any um, European initiative that deserves President Trump. This is it. Um uh, he should kick over the whole chessboard and just uh tell them that um uh they're going to face major sanctions and uh, major trade retaliation if they continue to pursue this notion that they get to decide how the United States pursues its own national security, its own counterterrorism program since the Europeans are so much better at that apparently. Uh, it's just uh it's a it's an insane situation uh, uh but it will continue to get worse, uh, is my guess, until uh, there's a serious political uh, decision at high levels of the U.S. government to fight it, uh, uh, because if they let it continue to go on as a brush war, it will not end well for the U.S.
3: Stuart, you've had a little trouble explaining what the Advocate General is. I don't think anybody's going to try to explain that to the president. I think what we'll... (laughs) what will happen is that we'll wait to see what the court does. And then if it goes against the standard contractual clauses or issues some similarly disruptive ruling, then yeah, the president will probably have something to say.
0: I sure have. I sort of, this one I actually hope he does because uh, uh, the clarity of, uh, of a tweet on this issue uh, uh, is, is what it needs. Uh, And uh, uh, the words, kiss my American butt probably should appear in it. Uh, The U.S. is also struggling with uh, uh, privacy in the context of national security and uh, David, I was really interested. The Second Circuit now is ruling on something that was until the Second Circuit got into it uh, an issue for Congress Uh, and uh, there's there's a really interesting interplay here between the arguments being made to Congress, arguments that were made to the FISA court by Amiki, and then uh, what's showing up in the Second Circuit opinion. So tell us what the FISA issue is and um, what the Second Circuit uh, has done with it.
2: Yeah, this is all about the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, and in particular, the provision of that act known as Section 702. Um, And it's a, a very important, very Uh, in some quarters, controversial element of the FISA Amendment Act that basically allows foreign intelligence surveillance of non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be abroad without probable cause of the sort that you need under the traditional FISA provisions. And that allows it, among other things, it allows it to be conducted at a scale far beyond that of traditional FISA with, you know, target numbers in the 100,000 plus range. Uh, And the court in this long and I think important decision uh, reaches addresses anyway three issues. First, um, you know, when you do 702 surveillance on a non-US person who's abroad, you inevitably pick up both sides of the wiretapped communications, including if they're talking to a. US person in the United States, uh, you know, that US person's communications. This is called incidental collection, and the court refers to it as such, and the court basically says, that it's okay. It's always part of any wiretapping that you will get both sides of the communication uh, and the court seems to be comfortable with it. Second, when you operate surveillance like this at scale, it's inevitable that there are going to be mistakes. Uh, Either the reasonable belief that the statute requires turns out to be wrong Uh, and wrong from the inception, uh, or somebody roams. They move from abroad to the U.S., becoming ineligible for surveillance, but the government doesn't keep up with their movements. Uh, This is um, incidental, uh, I'm sorry, inadvertent collection, basically mistaken collection. Uh, Here the court just says, well, if that's problematic, it wasn't problematic here because it didn't contribute to this guy's uh, conviction. He pled guilty on a conditional plea. And then third, they uh, remand for further review of the question of querying. They say querying of the big 702 databases, which have a lot of information in them, and, and you can sort of cast your line into that into that database with a query term and see what comes back in response. Um, the querying has to be reasonable. Um, and that may depend, I think, on the standards used to collect it. So nobody, for example, fusses about querying data that's been collected on a probable cause standard. But here in the 702, there's some question and there's been a, a good deal of fussing uh, legislatively. And in the FISA court, there were some proceedings that you mentioned about you know, the kinds of querying of 702 that are permitted, particularly when they don't relate to foreign intelligence and, and pertain only to sort of ordinary crime like Bonnie and Clyde robbing a bank. And on that, again, the court sends it back to the district court for further proceedings.
0: Are they hinting that they think that uh, it might be necessary to get an actual judicial warrant to do those searches? Or are they just saying um, that the standard might be probable cause? Uh, I, uh,
2: I don't – I'm reluctant to read too much into it. Um, this is so – it's so complicated. Judge Lynch, who wrote the opinion, is actually pretty familiar with this field and, and did a good job on it. Um, but I'm not sure they're actually going so far as to suggest a warrant. I think they had their hands full, frankly, with just the first couple of issues in the case, and they were, uh, you know, pleased to exercise yeah, there, judicial <laughs> restraint.
0: There's an element of oh, this is hard. We're done with all the stuff except this one thing. Let's send it back send and it back, let catch it do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I. On the other hand, I mean the. Uh, the FBI made a pretty strong plea when this was a legislative issue that um, if they had to stop their uh, their their standard queries right. uh, and create a special a form for this one query that went to this one database, which was probably uh, low payoff in most cases, uh, those queries just wouldn't happen, and they might miss something pretty important.
2: Yep and And you know you you sound a little bit maybe like an FBI apologist, but you're absolutely right the uh, The technology for their federated database searches is is you know complicated, and they prefer to have sort of a single standard um, and it, it complicates the engineering to try to carve out a database and and they worry about missing something and then you know a feeling bad for missing it, especially if something bad results, and B, of course, you know, being pilloried for it later in the way our system functions today. So uh, it's a challenge for them to engineer this thing in a way that's uh, legally compliant and technologically feasible.
0: So the one, the other thing that bothers me about this is, I think um, the notion that the Fourth Amendment. Erects this elaborate system with, OK, inadvertent, yeah, maybe, and uh, incidental, sure, uh, but uh, searches later uh, require something, you know, some approval, some probable cause. I, you know, all, to read all of that into the word reasonable is really pretty aggressive.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the court here, as I said, I think is trying not to do more than it, it needs to. I mean, they sort of admire the problem. And, and this is not really meant as a criticism of them, because I do think, as I say, you know, there is something to judicial restraint. They do have their hands full and and it, it may benefit from the full dress review in the lower court. But they hum some, some notes. Uh, they don't sing the whole tune. They talk about reasonableness. They, they talk a little bit about probable cause. Uh, it's not clear to me how they're going to rule if and when this thing Pops back up, but you know we're we're far removed from the days of the tiny constable hiding in the bottom of the horse-drawn carriage, and uh, you know even Justice Scalia recognizes that thermal imagers and modern technology raise some some issues that need to be resolved in keeping with traditional principles, but applied in new settings. So it is a challenge uh, to sort of figure out how to apply the Fourth Amendment in these kinds of environments. They're doing the best they can here and uh, I think, you know, proceeding in a kind of a traditional common law, one step at a time kind of fashion.
0: Yeah. um, Okay. Uh, Two quick ones. Uh, um, Italy has followed France in imposing a – gross revenue tax or uh, uh, on uh, digital services. Uh, this is kind of a, a discriminatory tax on mostly American uh, uh, Silicon Valley uh, companies. Uh, um, a, and uh, Russia has t- taken the, the other tack, uh, basically said, well, you know, we want to see if we can actually operate the internet without anybody being able to come in. Uh, it's obviously a, uh, a dry run for cutting off access to to uh, outside uh, agitators in the event of another uh, um, uprising uh, like the Maidan or the color revolutions in the uh, uh, Arab world. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, what's – to what extent does the Italy uh, uh, law uh, tell us that – Uh, Silicon Valley has a long-term problem, and uh, uh, what does Russia's success in cutting off the internet uh, uh, tell us about the future structure of the internet?
3: Well, the Italy law, similar to the France law, 3% revenue tax, uh, both Italy and France have said it will go away if the OECD adopts rules um, to deal with this, moving from the current – system of income tax at the place the revenue is earned versus where the services are delivered. Turkey's uh, imposed a bigger 7.5% tax, but you could have an international agreement that made all this go away. I think it would result in increased taxation of, you know, these big Silicon Valley companies, but probably the international agreement would be you know, some kind of reasonable accommodation that would allow people to survive, but it's a, it's a big, it's a big cost, it, you know, it could. Have- and,
0: and, and OECD is a terrible place for the U.S. to be negotiating, there's like uh, 25 European countries, it has to be consensus, uh, uh, they're all told what they can say and can't say by the European Union, uh, so it, it's it's basically 25 to one on anything that the Europeans have a firm view on.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, and Secretary Manukin came out against. Uh, well, he said he wanted to give companies the option of either taking uh, applying any OECD rules or the existing system. But I'm not sure that's going to fly. You know, it's going to uh, still be a patchwork. So this is enough of a hit that it could affect share prices. Yeah, significantly, perhaps.
0: And and, and once 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 two countries have done it, they're all going to do yeah. it. Yeah.
3: Um, the, the Russia thing could be another trend. Russia hasn't said what it They conducted some tests where they said they disconnected from the Internet successfully. They haven't said what that means. And they're at a pretty early stage of this. Um, there's been a lot of legislation. They're still telling companies what equipment they need to install to make this happen. Uh, and. You know, the fact that the Russian Internet disconnected sort of begs the question of, well, if you're in Russia and you're using Amazon Web Services or Azure or Google or Alibaba cloud platforms, how do you get to them when the Internet disconnects? Um, So I think um, it's an interesting effort. Clearly, the Russians are happy with themselves, but I think there's a lot more chapters in making this work.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Putin's uh, folks are, are much better at press releases than in actual engineering. So it is quite possible that uh, this is more of a press release than actual internet engineering. Or they just discovered that, uh, wow, yeah, we can, we can maintain a, uh, a list of names and numbers uh, uh, inside Russia. Uh, what do you know? And, of course, that's a pretty trivial accomplishment. Uh, uh, let me go through uh, – uh, Four quick hits, uh, uh, also uh, uh, using the uh, screen of is this real legislation or fake, Uh, Illinois has a new law uh, that I would describe as fake regulation of um, artificial intelligence uh, used in video job interviews. It it, it may be just a placeholder to say we care about this, uh, but the idea is that uh, companies are actually having people do video interviews and then using AI to decide which ones, which which of the interviewees they want to actually interview, and uh, as you can imagine, there's all kinds of controversy around that and whether they're uh, claiming that they can spot liars uh, uh, based on the rate at which they blink or whatever, uh, and the fact that AI is hard to, uh, has trouble explaining itself. Uh, but the... Bill just says, well, you have to kind of tell people that uh, um, you're using AI and uh, um, they can consent to it. But, of course, if you want the job, you're going to consent to it Uh, and uh, people get – Uh, to ask that their interview be deleted afterwards. Um, Again, pretty modest uh, as a regulation of artificial intelligence. Uh, Federal law uh, signed by the president, the TRACED Act, which is meant to attack robocalls. It's kind of halfway between fake and real. In my view, uh, it uh, encourages the use of authentication of uh, uh, phone numbers by the Uh, phone uh, providers, the phone companies that ought to know who that phone number belongs to. So it's probably – modestly effective and it does some things like change the statute of limitations. Um, I'm not convinced it's going to stop robocalls, but maybe it will make them a little harder to to get through and a little easier for us to screen out. The FAA has produced what looks like a real effort to control drones by requiring that all drones have remote, provide remote IDs to uh, a central authority so that uh, uh, you can find out uh, Uh, who owns a a particular drone that is flying uh, in a particular pattern. That could turn out to be pretty important. Maybe not the only regulation drones will end up getting, but it's a big step forward. And then in something that has got to hurt and therefore is pretty real, uh, the FTC's LabMD debacle continues, uh, 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 as, as you listeners will remember. This is a... An, a, a really foolish FTC enforcement action in which they uh, went after uh, uh, LabMD for having installed uh, – this is a blast from the past – LimeWire uh, uh, on its uh, network, which exposed the uh, uh, the other files, uh, some medical files. Uh, uh, only one person is known to have actually downloaded them, and that was somebody who was trying to sell services that would prevent such uh, downloads to uh, LabMD, and when LabMD thought they were being... Jerked around and extorted uh, um, the company, uh, took them to the FTC and got the FTC to launch a case against them. Uh, Lots of shady dealings on the part of the uh, company that was uh, doing the extorting. Um, And the FTC, uh, despite lots of warnings, they lost an ALJ decision, which they appealed to their friends, the commissioners. The commissioners said, oh, yes, this is our staff. Um, We think they should win. Uh, and then they went to the 11th Circuit, which said, are you nuts? This this was, this was sleazy from the start. Uh, then LabMD turned around and said, uh, so we spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on litigation as a result of this uh, benighted effort. Uh, we'd like our attorney's fees. And they have just won about uh, half of what they asked for because uh, um, the uh, cap on uh, uh, hourly rates is about $200 an hour. Um, uh, but it's, It's still close to a million dollars and the FTC will have to pay. And uh, I'm looking forward to the creative uses that uh, uh, LabMD's CEO, Michael Daugherty, puts that money to because I'm sure he'll find some useful uh, and galling uh, um, use for the funds. Uh, So that's – that's it. Uh, that catches you up for uh, the uh, lengthy period in which we were gone, and we'll be back next week. Uh, I want to thank Maury Shank, David Chris, Nate Jones for joining me and uh, doing Yeoman's uh, service in catching us up. Uh, This has been episode 295 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, Please send us comments uh, and write us reviews. The comments go to cyberlawpodcast at Uh, steptoe.com. I'm not going to tell you to follow me on Twitter anymore because I have gotten so tired of uh, posting stuff on Twitter that it's – Pretty haphazard whether you'll see it or not. Uh, uh, but I will, uh, as promised, read a few reviews. We got a whole bunch of reviews over the um, uh, Christmas break. Uh, um, Active Sedate says, like many others, I love how wide the discussion on this podcast goes across all relevant tech and cyber issues. It's nice to have a podcast that focuses on de- developments worldwide rather than just the U.S., the hosts are interesting and provocative, notwithstanding the occasional unfair dig at the U.K. and the European Court of Human Rights, but including the wholly justified digs at the EU, European Court of Justice, and the French. I'm guessing active state is a Brit. Um Echo Delta Waltz says, as a retired non-tech lawyer interested in the legal side of national security and foreign policy issues, I find the Cyber Law Podcast an essential and efficient means to scratch below the superficial and sometimes inaccurate coverage of developments in cyber by the mainstream media. In addition, for the most part, Stuart Baker and his regulars and guests provide mature commentary. Yeah, mostly my regulars and guests. Uh, Without feeling they need to be comedic entertainers, Stuart is the smartest guy I know in this space. Uh, Echo Delta Waltz, uh, as a retired non-tech lawyer, you need to get out more uh, (laughs) because there's a lot more smart people than me. Uh, And finally, Gamma 34. As a former federal investigator and attorney practicing in this area, I find the topics interesting and relevant. I particularly enjoy the discussion which reach beyond the legal arguments and touch on the policy arguments. I've purchased several books discussed on the podcast. This is exciting uh, uh, because I agree that's one of the better things that we do. The podcast highlights books and articles which I would not have found in any other way, the latest being The Ethical Algorithm in Episode 291. Thanks, and I hope you keep it going for a long time. Well, I kind of hope I keep going a long time. Uh, And The Ethical Algorithm is worth reading if you get a chance. Uh, So, that's that's it. Uh, lots of uh, good reviews. Uh, it's kind of disappointing. Not, not much vitriol. Um, uh, maybe, David, you could uh, uh, direct some of the vitriol that uh, that you're getting in my direction because uh, 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 entertaining uh, uh, vitriolic reviews uh, have been scarce on the ground the last uh, year or so. And well, Stuart, I'm,
2: I'm more than happy to help you out in that regard.
0: <laughs> Thank you for the <laughs> opportunity to serve. <laughs> Okay, so uh, to the audience, please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.